Welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, uh, I took a little bit of a longer break from the podcast than I had originally intended, uh, but we are back, and I wanted to kind of kick off the podcast here again with a topic that has been on my mind uh, for quite some time now, and I would like to tackle the issue of social justice in our culture today and do my best to look at it through a biblical lens. And so let's go ahead and uh, jump right in. In 1828, uh, Louisiana sugar plantation owner Jan- uh, Andrew Durnford purchased 14 slaves. Uh, one historian notes, uh, quote, Durnford was known as a stern master who worked his slaves hard and punished them often in his efforts to make his Louisiana sugar plantation a success. By the time of his death, uh, Durnford ac- accumulated 75 slaves. Uh, one time an engineer offered him $50,000 for the use of his plantation, but he refused and said that he could not, quote, give up control of his people, end quote. One writer said this uh, about him, quote, Durnford uh, frequently spoke or wrote contemptuously about his human property, saying that it was impractical to free slaves because they could not take care of themselves, and that it was unlikely that slaves could save up to buy their own freedom because, like their owners, they did not have the moral courage to deprive themselves of luxuries, end quote. Durnford also said that he could not liberate his slaves because, quote, self-interest is too strongly rooted in the bosom of all that breathes the American atmosphere, end quote. John Stanley was a wealthy slaveholder who lived in the early 1800s in Craven County, North Carolina. And Stanley collected slaves, and by 1820, he owned 32 household slaves, 15 of which were children. In addition to this, he owned 95 slaves that worked his fields, and he continued to add more slaves throughout the 1820s. William Ellison was a slaveholder who owned 63 slaves and 900 acres of land. One writer observes that, quote, not one of his slaves was allowed to purchase his or her own freedom, end quote. There were also women who owned slaves. It wasn't just men. Uh, One such uh, woman had a sugarcane plantation and owned a 152 slaves. We live in an age that exemplifies the error of Isaiah 520, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Our current generation either ignores or even praises these slaveholders. Surprisingly, I read one article online where the author clearly stated that the slaveholder, Anthony Johnson's descendants, deserved reparations. Now, of course, the question has to be asked, wherever you land on reparations, in what world do the descendants of slaveholders deserve reparations? In what kind of world would ignore the atrocities of these men and women and even advocate for reparations Uh, of their descendants? And the answer to this question is that only a world that sees color and not individuals. A color or a world uh, that does not believe this. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, 
but by the content of their character. Now, the reason that these slaveholders are viewed this way today is, quite frankly, for one thing and one thing only. It is the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. Because what all of these slaveholders that I just mentioned have in common is that every single one of them was black. In 1840, in South Carolina alone, there were 454 black slaveholders. Blacks were responsible for selling other blacks and enslaving other blacks. In his essay on this subject, uh, Richard Halliburton Jr. writes that the census of 1830 lists 3,775 free Negroes who owned a total of 12,760 slaves. In the same essay, Halliburton also observes this. He says, yet at one time or another, free blacks owned slaves in each of the 13 original states and later in every state. The history of this phenomenon is quite complicated as motivations are hard to determine. It has been estimated that 42% of black slaveholders in 1830 only owned one slave. And it is furthermore assumed, and this is an assumption, but it is assumed that these are relationships of benevolence or philanthropy. In other words, a free husband might purchase his wife in order to protect her. But benevolence does not account for all of these situations. Carter G. Woodson was a black historian born in the late 1800s. He is currently listed on the NAACP website under the category of civil rights leaders. He did write a number of books on black history, and he tells us the accounts of both situations, that is to say, situations of benevolence and situations of oppression. One story he tells goes like this, quote, some of these husbands were not anxious to liberate their wives immediately. They considered it advisable to put them on probation for a few years, and if they did not find them satisfactory, they would sell their wives as other slaveholders dispose of Negroes. For example, a Negro shoemaker in Charleston, South Carolina, purchased his wife for $700, but on finding her hard to please, he sold her a few months thereafter for $750, gaining $50 by the transaction, end quote. A similar set of stories is told to us by Calvin Wilson. He says, uh, narrated through another author, this, quote, a free black in Trimble County, Kentucky, sold his own son and daughter south, one for $1,000 and the other for $1,200. A Maryland father sold his slave children in order to purchase his wife. A Columbus, Georgia black woman, Dilsey Pope, owned her husband. He offended her in some way and she sold him. Fanny uh, Kennedy of Louisville, Kentucky, owned her husband Jim, a drunken cobbler, whom she threatened to sell down the river. At New Bern, North Carolina, a free black wife and son purchased their slave husband father. When the newly bought father criticized his son, the son sold him to a slave trader. The son boasted afterward that the old man had gone to the cornfields about New Orleans where they might learn him some manners, end quote. Then, uh, same author wrote this. He said, quote, make a slave and overseer of his fellow mass, or sorry, make a slave and overseer over his fellow slaves, as sometimes happen, and he would be three times as tyrannical as a white man, end quote. 
The book, The American Past, has a section on black slave masters, and I want to read it to you, uh, or at least a section of it. It says this, quote, there were black slave owners. The census of 1830 counted 3,775 free African Americans in possession of 12,760 slaves. A few, most in Louisiana, qualified as great planters. Andrew Durnford of New Orleans had 77 slaves. When questioned, Durnford said that owning slaves was the only way to wealth in the South. Although he contributed to the American Colonization Society, Durnford freed only four slaves during his lifetime, one in his will. More typical of black slave owners was Dilsey Pope, a free black woman in Georgia who owned her husband. Like Virginia, Georgia required slave owners who manumitted their slaves to send them to another state. Therefore, free African Americans who bought their spouses out of slavery were able to stay together only by owning them and their children as slaves. Dilsey Pope's story was unusual only in that after she and her husband had a nasty quarrel, Mrs. Pope sold him to a white neighbor. When the couple reconciled, the new owner refused to sell Mr. Pope back to his wife. Now, the reality here of all of this is simply that history is much more complicated than we thought. And it is here where the wisdom of uh, Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn is apropos. In his book, Gulag Archipelago, he wrote this. If it were only so simple, if there were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, end quote. In other words, the world is messier than the social justice advocates suppose. History isn't as clean as we think it is. We all do bad things. One is not exempt because he is white or black. It is hard enough to create justice in the present, let alone in the past. Uh, If we can't even set things right today, how are we going to set things right in the past? Now, my point in beginning this podcast series talking about black slave masters is not to seek Uh, retributive justice myself or for anyone else. Uh, It is not to seek damages for anybody. Rather, my point in bringing this up is simply to demonstrate, as one person has said before, the problem is sin, not skin. The modern social justice movement, by and large, basically says that white is evil and black is good. And you don't have to look very far to find this in our culture, uh, to find places like uh, Coca-Cola and others saying that we are to try to be less white. Uh, This is a, by the way, theological claim. It is a religious claim. And what I would like to do is for us to see how the biblical doctrine of homartiology and anthropology refute this claim. Now, we live in a complicated world. Uh, in a world that does not uh, always lend itself to uh, fitting neatly in brown paper packages tied up with string. Oversimplification does seem to be a disease in our current generation, and we've lost the ability to dialogue because of it. And so I want to spend the next several weeks discussing the social justice movement in America and in the American church. The social justice movement is a movement that has slowly been percolating in American colleges and universities for decades, and only recently has it become mainstream so that we see it every day on the evening news. 
just five or ten years ago, nobody had heard of terms like critical race theory, intersectionality, microaggressions, cultural appropriation, anti-racism, systemic racism, white fragility, white rage, white privilege, woke, and preferred pronouns. But it's here, and from the look of things, it's here to stay for a while. So how are we going to address this issue? Well, I do want to begin this series by saying that my overarching goal is to adorn truth. As Christians, we love truth supremely, and I want to emphasize and elevate the truth above all things. And one of the ways that I want to do this is by fairly representing my opponents. If we are going to have disagreements, I want those disagreements to be over the substance of the matter. I want to be so careful and so articulate that if they were to listen to this podcast series, they would only disagree with me on my conclusions, not on the definitions themselves. In other words, I don't want to create straw man arguments. There is no honor in erecting a fake worldview and smashing it. I want to do justice to this topic and to those who will disagree with the conclusions that I will advocate for. Uh, and so if you disagree with me, then I want it to be over the conclusions that I draw, but I want you to at least say, yes, he did fairly represent my view. Now, there's going to be a certain challenge to this because the social justice movement is a rapidly evolving worldview. And so the definitions and descriptions that I will give throughout this series do not always characterize every single proponent of social justice. And so I am trying to, in a sense, hit a moving target. And so I will do the best that I can to define this movement in a way that most of the modern advocates should agree with. So in my effort to fairly represent the view, I'm going to be trying to represent kind of the mainstream version of this uh, as much as it is a moving target, uh, try to be uh, accurate uh, with uh, with representing, defining things the way they do, and so on and so forth. And as always, uh, I invite you uh, to uh, reach out and continue this conversation, and I may even devote uh, one or more podcast episodes to addressing uh, perhaps objections or things that come uh, in on this. So uh, I invite you to, to always uh, reach out to me in that. Now, before we land the plane today, I want to go back to my opening illustration, and I want to ask everyone to do me one favor, and that is to be intellectually honest with themselves. I want to present you with a simple Rorschach test. <laughs> what is a Rorschach test? Well, it is one of those uh, ink blot tests used widely in the 1960s. So you, you know, you show someone a card with an ink blot on it, and you ask them what they see, and uh, it's supposed to indicate to you people's perception of truth and of things. Now, this test is going to inform you whether you have learned your lesson well from the spirit of the age, or whether you love and adorn the truth. Now, I would assume, I would uh, assume that everyone was angry at the injustice of those slaveholders in my opening illustration before I told you their ethnicity. This is, of course, as it should be. When you hear of oppression, you should be angry at the oppressors. 
That's normal, or at least that should be normal. But here's the Rorschach test or the litmus test, and it is here. If your anger shifted in any way after you knew that they were black, then you might not love justice as much as you think you do. You might be among the number of people that, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.10, refuse to love the truth. The narrative has blinded you to the truth. It has blinded you from recognizing an actual example of injustice. And this is, I think, one of the central failures of the modern social justice movement. It teaches people to hate the truth, to hate justice, and to hate the light. The modern social justice movement embraces partiality in order to eliminate partiality, which is nonsensical. It uses unequal weights and measures. And of course, Proverbs 20 and verse 10 says that unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. To have unequal, or I'm sorry, to have equal weights and measures in this scenario would be to, to, to be angry at injustice before you knew the ethnicity of the oppressors and to be equally angry after you knew their ethnicity. You cannot be a pick-and-choose offendee. Uh, Oppression is an equal opportunity offender. And the sooner we realize that, the the closer we will be to a biblical view of sin instead of a worldly view of sin. Now, said another way, if you are only offended by the oppressor's skin color and not the oppressor's oppression, then oppression doesn't offend you, skin color does. We are being sold a bill of goods, a simulacra of justice— or a counterfeit justice. It may look like justice on the outside, but it's a forgery, a fabrication, an imposter of the real thing. Let's do just one more Rorschach test, based once again on our opening illustration, based on the fact that thousands of blacks have owned tens of thousands of black slaves. Let's do this test based on the injustice of skin color-based reparations. Just consider this. You will either support biblical justice or you will support injustice. There is no such thing as unbiblical justice. All justice is biblical and all un- injustice is unbiblical. A simple Rorschach test is apropos. If you support skin color based reparations, then you support reparations for the descendants of slave masters, which is another way of saying that you support injustice. Wokeism, then, doesn't mind supporting injustice as long as it gets you cultural relevance, book contracts, speaking engagements, and societal applause. What rescues us from this madness? The Word of God. Do you hate white-on-black injustice and black-on-white injustice and black-on-black injustice and white-on-white injustice, or do you only hate one of those kinds of injustices? One of the problems of the modern social justice movement is that it has a collapsed view of sin and injustice. Where it sees only certain kinds of injustice and turns a blind eye to other kinds of injustice. The Bible, on the other hand, condemns all forms of injustice. The biblical view of man is that all men are totally depraved. All men are lost in sin and in need of justification. In one sense, wokeism doesn't go far enough. Its skin-color-based view of human sin and righteousness ignores the biblical reality that we are all oppressors, we are all evil, and we are all in need of redemption. And if you don't understand a correct theology of man and sin, you can't get to a right uh, theology of salvation, which means that first and foremost, the solution to the great woke oversight 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, we will embark on a new podcast series to explore this topic in greater detail. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.